1: And welcome to The Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. I'm your host, Nick DiGilio. I'm a podcaster, comedy writer, and performer, graduate of Second City, a Saturday Night Live expert and historian, and in each week we will look back at everything, SNL, the best, the worst, the good, the bad, the classic, the forgotten. We'll talk about full seasons, full casts, behind-the-scenes stories, episodes, sketches, SNL's historical significance, and much, much more. Sometimes I'll have guests, sometimes I won't, but... I will always prove in every episode that that tired cliché, that show hasn't been funny in years, is absolutely wrong. And I do have a guest on this episode, and I'm very excited to be welcoming writer Mike Thomas. Um, He uh, wrote the critically acclaimed oral history book, The Second City Unscripted Revolution and Revelation at the world-famous Comedy Theater. Uh, about the fantastic, you know, second city theater here in Chicago. Uh he has written for years uh about the arts and entertainment, about arts and entertainment and so much more at the Chicago Sun Times. He's uh you know, writing has appeared in periodicals and magazines and all over the internet and everything. He's interviewed Louis C.K., Stephen Colbert, Bill Cosby, Rodney Dangerfield, Phil, Phyllis uh, Diller, Robin Williams, Sarah Silverman, and so many more comic icons. And we are here uh, to talk to him on uh, that show hasn't been funny in years about his book. You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman. Um, For those of you who are regular listeners of this podcast or have known me uh, throughout the years, you know that my favorite cast member in the history of Saturday Night Live is the one and only Phil Hartman. And a lot of people share that opinion. And Mike Thomas's book is called You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman. We're going to talk all about Phil Hartman with my guest, Mike Thomas. And hello, Mike. How you doing, man?
0: Hey Nick, I'm doing great. How are you?
1: Good, good. Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you doing this. Um, it's a
0: pleasure to be here.
1: Long time, uh, long time Chicagoan. You are.
0: I am. Yeah, I've been here since '95.
1: Uh, yeah, where are you from originally?
0: I hopped here from Cleveland, and before that, I was from uh, East Lansing, so Michigan uh-huh. State University.
1: Well, there you go. All right. Cleveland, I have mowed
0: Ohio. every inch of that campus, by the way.
1: <laughs> have you really?
0: <laughs> yeah, on the grounds crew during the summer. It was fantastic. Uh,
1: sounds like a great experience. And uh, Cleveland, huh? How long did you stay in? How long were you in Cleveland? I
0: was in Cleveland. Let's see. I went to school there at John Carroll, so four years, and then I was there uh, two or three years afterwards. But I have a lot of extended family there, so I had been going yeah. there since since childhood. I just happened yeah. to land there for college.
1: I love Cleveland. It's uh, I love that place. I think it's It was kind of up
0: and coming when I was there. It's the same geography, really, as Chicago, being right on it, the lake. It but really it's, is. Yeah, it's never yeah. quite come up to, to where Chicago got. I'm, you know, fingers crossed though. It's getting better. Yeah.
1: Now, were you there when they opened the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame,
0: or was that? Before? I was. I was actually a temp on the site of the Rock and Roll Get Hall out. of Fame. No, really? I think I was like. Uh, I was 21. Horrible job market. Just graduated, so I they sent me to the construction site to no do kidding. paperwork at the Rock Hall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I went to the opening ceremony when, when it was done, and you know saw Billy Joel in his bright yellow jacket and a bunch of other rock legends. So that was kind of cool.
1: That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I've been. I've I've, I've had the pleasure of going there twice, and uh, and I think it's a I think it's a great facility. I think it's awesome. I love it. It is.
0: Yeah, and you know a lot of great artifacts there. I think they do a lot of private parties too. Because. Yeah. You know, I, I, so yeah, it's a great place.
1: I'm not real sure about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame itself. I love the I love the right. facility. I have issues with who's in and who isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, uh, everybody does. <laughs> like for like, yeah, exactly. Like for for instance, this year is the first time that Warren Zevon has ever been on the ballot, which to me is a stunning fucking crime. Yeah, that is an, absolutely
0: yeah. stunning. He should yeah. have been in a decade ago, I
1: mean, <laughs> without question. You and I are going to get along fine, Mike. There's oh no yeah,
0: man. Oh Zevon, one of my all time <laughs> favorites too. You know, that so, was Letterman's favorite too. As yeah, I yeah, had. had him on Zivon.
1: regularly, and when. Whenever Paul was out, he would, uh, you know, he would fill in for Paul. Yeah. Uh, and, and then that, I mean, that whole week he was on, you know, after he was diagnosed with cancer is probably five of my favorite Letterman shows of all time.
0: Oh, so, God. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. There was one heartbreaking performance in particular toward the end there.
1: Yeah. Beautiful stuff. So yeah. when did you start? When did you start writing? And you wrote, you wrote, you know, I know you from the Sun-Times and other things, but like when did you get into writing in, in, uh, here, in, here in Chicago?
0: Uh, I had been writing in Cleveland, you know, freelancing for sh- sh- Cleveland magazine. And there was this alt-weekly called Scene where, you know, I, I started off as, you know, a, t- a 21-year-old uh, interviewing sort of former rock legends. You know? yeah. uh, paid $25 a piece. So I was right. in the money. But, you know, I hopped to Chicago and I just started putting feelers out. And gradually I got some freelance work. Um and, you know, I was working at a bar one night. My cousin used to own a bar up in Lincoln Park, and, and, and I read that this guy named Bill Zamy had yeah. come back to town. He was from here, and he was working on a Jay Leno book. I had been reading his work forever yeah. in Rolling Stone and Esquire. And so I just called him and said, hey, I want to pick your brain. I'm an aspiring writer. Uh, can we meet up? So we met up, and uh, for the next three, four years, I ended up as his legman on four different yeah. books.
1: Well, um, I'm. I know. I'm. I'm sorry that he. That you know, if it's for you, who's someone who knew, worked him so closely, but we all. Thank I mean, I knew, I knew. I knew. Bill as well. And um, sure. I mean, you know, a, a, a massive loss, and we. He was sick for a long time, and, and 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 he was. And and we. He actually, you know, he he lasted longer than we thought he would. At it was one point. amazing. Diagnosed, yeah. I think,
0: in 2013. A whole yeah. decade. He he battled through. Yeah, he died just yeah. recently. So, yeah.
1: which is sad. But he was an amazing dude and a great writer. Yeah. And and a huge influence on uh, on the way people cover this stuff that we're talking about.
0: today. He really was huge influence on me. You know, I went from working with him to the Sun Times. Uh, So, you know, I did a little freelance with him, but it was mostly research and learning the ropes, half by osmosis, just doing stuff, doing a lot of interviews and research. And, you know, that prepped me years later for writing my own books.
1: Yeah. Uh, a, A true class act, a great guy and a pro. Um, yeah, just, for sure. No My big him. brother from another mother. For yeah, sure. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we miss him. We miss him yep, already. We do. Um, so so, uh, you know, writing for the Sun-Times, covering entertainment and things like that. Let's talk really quickly about your first book, which, of course, ties into Saturday Night Live uh, in every way. You wrote it about does. the second you wrote about the second city. Uh, uh, it's a terrific book, oral history. Um, Thank and, you. Uh, um, and tell everybody about that. It was published in 2009,
0: right? It was published in 2009 for their 50th anniversary. So, right. you know, we wanted it out uh, right as all the stars were converging on Chicago for uh, that, you know, big multi day party they had, which was right. amazing in and right. of itself. I mean, uh, but yeah, you know, what I, did? I envisioned this book um, as a prequel to this yeah. awesome SNL oral history I read right. by. Uh, James Andrew Miller. And I devoured that over Christmas yeah. break in 2002. I think it was. Yep. And so I that's hit on, the cover- that's, by the way,
1: that's on my coffee table right now. As we speak. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and
0: I, I have the extended version too. I don't know yep. if you have the direct. No. know yeah.
1: tr- Trust me. Yeah. I'm, I'm all over it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is, he is the expert. He is the SNL yeah. expert. So I have yep. read both of those, and you know, I had a chance to be on a on a panel with him in LA, and I told him like, you know, this was my inspiration, and he was kind enough to blurb my second book, which we'll get to. I know. Yep. Um, but yes, so so many people who went to SNL obviously came out of Second City. And so this was kind of a before they were stars type of book, talking to people like Colbert and Tina Fey and, and, you know, any number of other stars that came out of there to get a sense of how the theater was formed, the culture, how it evolved over the years, the triumphs, the tragedies. And, uh, it was really a whirlwind. I think I had to get it done in seven or eight months. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's what I envisioned it
1: as. I, I remember that whole time people. period vividly, obviously, uh, because I'm I'm a graduate of Second City. I, I studied at Second City, and, and um, I did not know that. Yeah, and I you know I never went on tour co or I never made the main stage or anything, but I did. I hey, they got my money, so that's cool. Um, <laughs> they got a lot of people's money. <laughs> yes, they did, including <laughs> including me. And uh, obviously, I'm 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 friends with uh, Kelly Leonard. Um, yes, you know whose father Roy is responsible for my for my entire broadcast career yeah Um, legend yeah absolute legend yeah
0: kelly was extremely helpful in that whole process i mean
1: he ran ran the place uh he still does kind of uh he ran the place at a very integral time and he is responsible for people like tina fey and stephen colbert and things like that uh like changing because at that time as you know you you know you wrote the book i'm not telling you anything you don't know but at that time they had kind of fallen into a rut yeah. And then bringing in guys like McNapier and, you know, piñata full of bees and things like that, things started to change. And when Kelly came in, um, there was that great resurgence.
0: There was. I mean, they became, uh, you know, uh, younger, more irreverent, uh, not as um, sort of uh, resting on their laurels or playing for the tourists. I mean, yep. they were making money. Uh, mm-hmm. It just it it wasn't uh, maybe as revolutionary as it could have been. And so they injected new life into the they place did. for sure.
1: They did and Kelly's Kelly's a big part of that, man. Uh, Yeah, definitely. So um, but so that book is terrific. I love that. And and obviously it ties into what we talk about on this podcast, which is Saturday Night Live, because so, so many cast members uh, got their start there. Um, But we're here to talk about, well, SNL in general, but specifically Phil Hartman. You wrote a terrific book called You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman. What's the origin of that book?
0: Well, thank you for the compliment, by the way. I mean, you know, I said, I think in the uh, in acknowledgments, you know, like most of my best ideas, it came from another person. Like, you know, my my idea for the Second City book uh, came from uh, our friend Rick Kogan of the Tribune. Of the idea for the Phil Hartman book came from a friend of mine who's just a stand-up comedian uh, in town. Um, and uh, he just emailed me one day and said, hey, I'd love to read a book about uh, – Phil Hartman. I said, God, that's a great idea. I love Phil. That cast was my cast because I was about, I don't know, 15 when, you know, he and Jan Hooks and Dana Carvey and Kevin Nealon all converged to create this amazing version of SNL that nobody had ever seen before. And so I just went with it. I'd been looking for ideas. It was about a year and a half after my second city book. and. Little by little, I chipped away and made the contacts and and uh, you know got a contract and started writing it.
1: The book uh, was released in uh, 2014, so about ten years. Yes, and uh, and 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 uh, I you know it's out there, it's still available. Everybody should get it. It's a it's a it's a really terrific book, especially if you're a fan. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you um, uh, on the podcast, well, one, we have a mutual friend, Steve Procope, Um and sure. Steve, Steve said to me, "Hey, you need to have Mike on your show." And I was like, "Yes, you know what, I should."
0: That was nice to hear from Steve. Uh, I appreciate he's, that.
1: Yeah, he's, he's a good. I see him all the time. Too much, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> he's a regular on my other podcast. He reviews movies with me and another guy.
0: Oh uh, man, he is encyclopedic. Um, about he is films. He
1: is, yes, we've. Uh, I. You know what? I've seen him at, at at the time of this recording. I have seen him every night for the past four nights, and I will see him for the next two because there is a Robert Zemeckis film festival. Oh wow! Every night, na- every night this week at the Music Box, and Robert Zemeckis is like you know my favorite director. So I've seen Steve constantly. Wait, but Zemeckis anyways,
0: is a Chicago guy too he right? is yes yeah.
1: outside yeah yeah absolutely and right. uh, so, so we've been celebrating the work every night of this past week of of zemeckis at the music box so i see steve all the time at critic screenings and he just said because Steve, you know, listens to the SNL podcast. He listens to this podcast and he's like, You should have Mike on. I'm like, That's a damn good idea. And he, he hooked us up. So I'm glad that you're here. And I'm, that's I'm
0: really fantastic. Here. Yeah, it's funny. Steve used to precede me before uh, lots of interviews I did for the Sun Times because we were both on the celebrity beat. So he'd be coming right. out while I'd be going in, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. But anyway, yeah. so the book is called You Might Remember Me The Life and Times of Phil Hartman. And let me just say up front, Um, that Phil Hartman, in my estimation, is the best cast member in the history of the show. Um, I
0: don't disagree with you.
1: um, And, you know, they used to, as you know, they used to call him the glue, and there's a reason for that. He was always good, no matter what sketch it was, no matter what position they put him in, if it was a small part or it was a large part, if he carried the sketch, if he didn't, if it was a good sketch, if it was a shitty sketch, you could always count on Phil Hartman to not only be good, but to support every single person on that stage. You really could. Yeah, Yeah, I mean,
0: there's a a line Jan Hooks had, like, you know, no matter how small the part, like, he played it for blood.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great quote from another person we've lost. Uh, Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, Uh, I got to write about her, like, uh, you know, just after she died, too. But another amazing performer.
1: Incredible, incredible. And as you mentioned, that cast was pretty spectacular. Um, But before we get into that, what is your personal experience with SNL? Talk about it like you said that that was your cast. So tell me your first memories of watching it um some of your favorite things not just you know specifically about Phil which we'll get to but your favorite stuff on SNL and your memories
0: yeah i mean like i said i was 15 maybe just 16 started to watch it it was the the first year after lauren michaels five-year hiatus where he came back and the show was flailing and they put together this cast of as lauren said people who had banged around for a bit and that was dana and that was phil and jan and, and a bunch of other great people and they just gelled right away and i i don't know i just remember watching uh you know sketches like frankenstein tonto and tarzan uh <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and and unfrozen caveman lawyer and, and uh, you know, of course, a little bit later, Clinton at McDonald's. Yeah, uh, just so many classic sketches. I mean, not all of them with Phil. I mean, Dana was uh, was amazing. Everybody did Church Lady back in yeah. the day. Everybody Absolutely. did Hans and Franz back yeah. in the day. Yep. I said Bach, by the way. Hans Franz Bach. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: it will happen when you're talking about it. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I was just I was just attracted to that, and of course, everybody, is, I think, loves uh, the cast that started them on the show. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. And, no, that and that's
1: and for me, that's the first guest because <laughs> I was oh, is that your first guest I, as well. No, yeah, I, was yeah. I, I was 10 when I was 10 when the first came on. And um, and I, I've i talked about this a million times that I, I've watched every episode of SNL since the George Carlin episode in 1975.
0: My God, I don't know yeah. if I've done that, but no, yeah, I've watched ridiculous. a lot of them.
1: And I, like you mentioned, when Lauren came back, you know, um, I mean, that first year he came back, he brought in the, you know, the sort of the, the movie stars. Uh, when they brought in at the end, at the end when he came back, like right before he came back, when they brought in like Robert Downey Jr. and it was weird. Yeah. So those people, Phil Hartman and Nealon and Carvey, they had to follow that.
0: <laughs> they had to follow that, but you know what? They were an ensemble. I think all those yeah. others didn't work quite as well together. They obviously would go on to be big individual stars. A I lot agree. of them, yeah, but yeah, it wasn't quite the ensemble. It
1: was weird. It was weird. It's weird to go back and watch all that stuff, which I've been doing ever since I started this podcast. It's very. Strange. I think when
0: was Joan Cusack on there too? She was, was on that same that season, 80, same 85, season right? yeah, eighty-five. Yeah, eighty-five. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was uh, uh, like, you know, Mike, Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr., Randy, right. C- Randy Quaid, Joan Cusack. Um, very strange uh, amalgamation of people. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, but, you know, some people stayed over uh, from that. But then in 86 to 94, those were the years, the eight years. Those were the eight years that Phil Hartman was on uh, from 86 yeah. to
0: 94. Yeah. And those were kind of golden years.
1: And what, how did he, it's interesting because his background is so fascinating for people who might not know this, they might have in their old vinyl collection, they might have a few albums that Phil Hartman actually designed, did the covers for. Can we talk yeah. a little bit? Talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Phil was a graphic designer. His brother was a music agent. Um, and he, he ran this agency, and he pulled Phil in to do some artwork because Phil was an artist from early on. He was always drawing, you know, on paper, on his walls, on. And he decided to to, um, to hitch up with his brother and make a little money. So he so he toured with a couple of bands. One of them was the Rockin' Foo, which I you probably don't. know know about other than having read about it in the book Um, but he became kind of a roadie and then he started doing designs for bands like Poco and uh, America if you look at America's Greatest Hits which is kind of an iconic album cover that's that's Phil Hartman
1: yeah it's and the Poco album cover is also a great one too the the Poco
0: is the one with the horse yeah yeah
1: it's beautiful yeah and and, and, you know and I I mean I, I found out about this years ago that he actually was an album cover designer and I was like I literally have like four albums that this guy's This guy. So he started out, you know, like when he started to want to do acting and get into that kind of stuff, it was kind of for, you know, for, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be like really technical about it, uh, it's a little bit old in the game to start. You know what I mean? Like he was an older dude at that point, not old, but he older than most people who decide that they want to jump into it.
0: Yeah, he was older than most people and he had some measure of financial security because he was already a professional artist. And he just decided at one point, I think it was at a birthday party for a friend that he wanted to jump up on stage at the Groundlings and show off his amateur chops and... That's when the ball started rolling, really. They kind of noticed him. He started taking classes there, and then he ended up being a member of this famous Second City-like troupe called the Groundlings in L.A., and he was there for 11 years. And that was his jumping-off point for SNL.
1: And who, who, who were among those people? Now, the Groundlings, for people who might not know, and I'm sure—actually, I'm sure people who listen to this podcast—it's an SNL podcast. I'm sure they know what the Groundlings are. I hope they do, because <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like the West Coast— uh, second city, where you know the the people who want to hire the producers and the scouts and stuff go yes. to, to to fill the void of cast members.
0: I, I think it was even much more so back in the day yeah. because there was no internet. You know, now they come from everywhere, but it was mainly you know second city uh, groundlings, uh, Improv Olympic, which turned into IO a, a right. little bit later. Right. Um, but yeah, the groundlings was this place where he acted with uh, you know people like uh, Paul Rubens, and and um, I'm trying to think like uh, Julius Sweeney came out of there a little bit later. Lisa Kudrow, so, right. a lot of people who went on. Uh, Will Ferrell was a groundling. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they all came out of that. But he trained for a long time and he was older than a lot of uh, people who were there. Um, and, I, you know, I think that sense of st- stability also gave him some of the confidence he had. I mean, he was confident in his own abilities, but he was still learning. But he knew he had something to fall back on. This wasn't like, oh, I have to have it or my life is destroyed. Right. So I think that came across in his characters and his stage persona uh but but like i said he was there for a long time and people wondered if he would ever leave you know even though he was so talented
1: yeah well it's interesting that you say that he did have that like sort of stability which um i think gave him more confidence you know what i mean like uh from the get-go like from the first episode he's on it's like man who's this guy you know it's, yeah. it's and I think that do you do you agree with that? That I totally sort of agree the, with yeah. that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, just just having certain things in your life, you know, one of them being financial semi security, He yeah. wasn't yeah, rolling yeah. in money or anything, yeah. or having something you know you could do if everything goes to crap. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a big thing that builds confidence.
1: Yeah. Well, um, uh, so in, you know, doing the ground. Now you mentioned Paul Rubens, um, uh, within that. And for people who might not know, of course, people know that he's Pee Wee Herman, and that, uh, collaboration, that artistic collaboration became huge, um, and, and became important. Uh, tell, tell us about, about the, the, the relationship that Phil had with uh, with Paul Rubens.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, they worked together for a long time at the Groundlings, you know, especially when Paul was formulating his Pee-wee persona, which became huge. I mean, it was a big draw at the Groundlings, and Phil would play uh, Captain Carl, this salty right. seafaring <laughs> captain, and, you know, it became so big at the Groundlings that they staged it at the Roxy, and then HBO, uh, you know, wanted to, to film it, and from there it grew into uh, a movie, Pee-wee's Pig adventure um and that grew into a series so everything came from the groundlings and you know phil and paul while they were at the groundlings were tight they'd have a falling out um some years later right uh but but at the groundlings they were kind of you know s- sort of on the same creative plane
1: yeah and i and as i've 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 uh, done part one of uh, of a of an episode earlier about people who actually were you know uh not cast on snl they tried out and they weren't they weren't cast, and one of them was Paul Rubens.
0: Yes, um, I think it was like eighty-one or something. He tried out. I can't mm-hmm. remember which year.
1: Yeah, and he didn't make it. And no. uh, and, it, and it's interesting because, like you mentioned, the movie, and, and you know, uh, the movie also features Jan Hooks in, in I think one of the funniest parts of that entire, one of the most memorable characters in that entire movie.
0: Of course, uh, the Alamo. Is,
1: it, yeah, the Alamo. <laughs> There's no basement <laughs> in the Alamo. Y'all have been the best group ever. I'm you know that whole thing. <laughs> she's so yeah, great. she's
0: a, she's amazing.
1: But, like, coming out of the Groundlings, okay, so let's talk a little bit about how we got SNL.
0: Well, uh, I mean, I see initially uh, he was friends with John Lovitz, who was also at the Groundlings. And uh, John got plucked in '85 to go to SNL. And he's one of the ones who told Lauren Michaels, you know, if you like me, you got to hire this guy. He's like, he's brilliant. Um, And, you know, one story goes that, you know, Phil was embroiled in a divorce from his second wife in 85. Uh, Lauren told me that he he could have come to SNL if he wanted to, um, you know, that year. But, uh, you know, it just didn't work out. So the next year he ends up getting another audition. Um, He's in New York. He's... Filmed, I think, a half dozen episodes of wee Playhouse after Mm -hmm. they had made the movie. Um, And he decides he wants to try out. And, uh, you know, he does and he gets the part. And, you know, Lovitz um, was a big help during that tryout. They did a scene together. um, And, uh, you know, after that, sort of Phil was on his way to, to comedy stardom.
1: So in general, Mike, t- 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 about those eight years, um, what was Phil's life like? I mean, obviously, it took a change when he met Bryn. And, uh, you know, yeah. and, and the whole thing, well, obviously, for, for a horrible tragedy, it it, it ended up in. Um, but what was it like during that period of time for Phil? Like, he made it. He's on the show in 1986. And obviously, right out of the gate, people are digging the cast. Um, and they're really specifically loving him. What was happening with him at that time during that, those tumultuous eight years?
0: Uh, You know, I I mean, uh, there were always trials, personally. I mean, on the show, his star just kept ascending, you know, and I think he, he was the only thing he wasn't pleased with, especially early on show wise, was that he didn't have breakout characters like Dana Carvey, for instance, and, you know, characters with a catchphrase. It wasn't until later on when his impression of Clinton was, you know, picked up and, and, uh, you know, repeated everywhere that, you know, that that sort of began happening. But that still wasn't an original character. So he was frustrated with that. He and Bryn had always had a, a, you know, sort of a relationship where they fought and then made up and fought and made up. um, And, you know, that continued through... SNL, uh, you know, she was there on and off. Um, he was able to compartmentalize, though, it seems to me, pretty well, because if something was bothering him personally, I, I don't know that I ever saw it on camera. I mean, right. right, you know what I'm saying? Like, he was generally, as you said, the glue in in every sketch he was in, or the star.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and when he met Brynn, he met her at a party in 1985, so he met her before he got the gig on SNL um yeah. and yet she wanted stardom as well and there is sort of a famous story about if you watch the intro to a couple of the seasons where the woman that he's with when they introduce each cast member um they each get like a still or at least a moment on screen mm-hmm. where they you know where they're introduced and there is the woman on a screen with him whose back is to the to the audience or sitting at a at a table but her earring is swinging <laughs> right um tell tell the story about that cuz it's a it's a pretty interesting Story and kind of indicative of of how she felt about him getting the gig.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, she was in that that sort of intro shot with him. She kept turning to the camera and they kept telling her, turn away. And so what you're seeing is her having just turned away and her earrings dangling. She just wanted to be on camera. She wanted to be a star. She wanted she wanted, uh, you know, people to notice her.
1: Yeah. Now, I don't want to get I want to actually talk more about during this interview. I want to talk more about his talent and the stuff that he did on SNL, not sort of the tragedy that that ended up happening. And obviously, like his work on on news radio is great. His work in in movies, everything the guy did, he was he was great. And I want to concentrate mostly on SNL. And obviously, the tragedy of of what happened uh, is just still stunning to me. I remember vividly listening to Jonathan Brandmeier that day. Hmm. Uh, when it happened and when, I, when the news broke. And I was just so unbelievably saddened about that. Um, you know, And, and yeah, everything about too. it is a tragedy. Uh, but let's talk about him on SNL. Um, I asked you to pick some of your favorite things that he did um, on SNL. And I'm going to play a clip here from uh, uh, from Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. Now, why don't you explain <laughs> uh, to people who might not know or to people who are just learning, what is Unfrozen Caveman? Caveman lawyer. And where did it come from? How did that
0: happen? It's uh, still one of my favorites. It was definitely one of Phil's favorites. It's, uh, it's from the imagination of Jack Handy, who used to write, you know, the deep thoughts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Unfrozen Caveman was uh, 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 Kirok, <laughs> spelled C-I-R-R-O-C, uh, right. was this caveman that was unthawed from ice after, I don't know, 100,000 years. And then he became a lawyer there's there's really no there's no story in between unthawing and became a lawyer right um and uh you know he uses his feigned ignorance to sway judges and juries like right. you know i don't know what this fax machine is our little demons right. living inside you right. know, stuff like that
1: i've got some audio from that but also for people who might not know uh I, you know, for, for, Mike, tell everybody what he looks like because he looks like a caveman. That's yeah,
0: a, sure. well, he's, he, he's caveman from the neck up, but from right. the neck down, he's he's decked out in a beautiful suit, tailored suit, but he's still got this crazy hair and these brows, you know, right. the the uh, right. that juts over his eyeballs. Uh, so he's and it all caveman up top.
1: It became a favorite. Well, here's just let's listen to to yeah. to, to, to one of the uh, unfrozen caveman lawyer segments that they did here.
0: Mr. Keyrock, are you ready to give your summation?
2: It's just Keyrock, Your Honor, and yes, I'm ready, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm just a caveman. I fell in some ice and later got thawed out by some of your scientists. Your world frightens and confuses me. Sometimes the honking horns of your traffic make me want to get out of my BMW and run off into the hills or whatever. Sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine, I wonder, did little demons get inside and type it? I don't know. My primitive mind can't grasp these concepts. But there is one thing I do know. When a man, like my client, slips and falls on a sidewalk in front of a public library, then he is entitled to no less than $2 million in compensatory damages and $2 million in punitive damages. Thank you.
1: Okay. So that's... uh, (laughs) I love it. I do too. I absolutely love it. Uh, And you said Jack Handy Uh, wrote that and, and came up with that sketch he
0: did yeah he was always he was the master of the offbeat
1: and what who were some of uh, phil's favorite collaborators and writers at the at the time that he was on
0: well handy was definitely one of them uh robert Smigel was another who would go on to write the uh, uh frank sinatra sketch i'm yeah. i'm thinking you might play here oh yeah uh, oh yeah, yeah. and the also be, and, group and also yeah.
1: i mean obviously he is um uh, Triumph, the insult comic dog, and he's triumph, the insult and, comic dog. And, and, and just and, a brilliant guy in general. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, Saturday tv Funhouse. I mean, it, uh, Smigel is one of the geniuses that has been a part of SNL. I mean, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and even Bob Odenkirk wrote a little bit for Phil. I, I don't know that he was a favorite because he was so young and he wasn't there for for very long. And, and you yeah. know, Conan O'Brien was there at the same time. um Downey, Jim Downey, the head yeah. writer, was uh you know a big force. Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and people just, I mean, like in, in general, working on SNL, uh, uh, who were his closest allies on the show and who were the people cast member wise that he got along with and the experience itself, uh, mostly, mostly good. He had, he had some issues off stage but what was the, in general, what was it like working with other, w- with other people for Phil?
0: I think mostly that whole cast gelled, honestly. I mean, but you know, closest, um, on and off were Dana Carvey for right. sure. Uh, John Lovitz. Remained a close friend. I mean, John. You know, John really idolized Phil, um, and and he really appreciated his talent. So they stayed close. Um, Jan Hooks, for sure. Although Jan had her own demons that Phil didn't always want to deal with, yeah. uh, on or off the set. But yeah, he was he was a guy who didn't like confrontation and. He he was pretty well liked by by almost everyone on the set. You know, he took took Chris Farley under his wing, so he was really a guiding force there.
1: He was like a father figure to when those young dudes came in. When when the, when a lot when you know when some of the people refer to it as the boys' club came in there in the early nineties. Yeah, uh, you know, like your Farleys and your Sandlers and uh, and and those guys and and uh, uh, Spade and those guys. Um, he was looked upon as like the, kind of the, the older brother or the father figure. Am I right?
0: Yeah, because he was in his 40s by then. He didn't get SNL until he was 37. Right. And by the time they came in, he was in his early 40s. And, you know, Farley especially would, you know, really wanted to know what Phil thought. He'd plop down in the makeup chair next to him and say, how am I doing, glue? Just very eager for his feedback. Yeah. Um and you know that's why uh, part of why that last show Phil did with Farley oh, man. Uh, was so touching, but we can get to that later.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, uh, it's 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 amazing. You know that that uh, well, we can talk about that now. That 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 final show that Phil did. Uh, uh, if you go back and watch it now, it's heartbreaking because they're both gone. Um, yeah, uh, and tragically. It's the, it, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, very, very tragically. Explain what that what that final bit was that they did with him and Farley on stage. Well,
0: it was uh, the the bit was so long farewell, uh, yeah. and Chris was the last one to sing. You know, as the Von Trapp kids have their yeah. own verses. You know, it, it, people sing. uh he, each sang a verse, and then Farley came out. Uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, and and saying his verse, and sat down on the stage, mm-hmm. uh, next to Phil, and put his head on his shoulder, and that was sort of it. Fade yeah. out.
1: Yeah, and just and there's just that the the lone spotlight on them on, this, on yes. the iconic on the iconic steps where everybody does their monologue, um, you know, and sitting there, and it just you watch it now and it's just it's heartbreaking because two you know two giants of comedy. Yeah. Um, Gone way too young. They uh,
0: were. Yeah. And Chris's brother was uh, very helpful in sort of, uh, you know, remembering Chris's experience with Phil on the set and his mother. They were were both helpful. Yeah.
1: Uh, And what was what were what were things that were surprising about the book when you were researching it, when you were doing interviews? What are some of the things that were like, man, I never would have guessed that things about Phil Hartman, things about writing the book that surprised you that you were thrilled about discovering?
0: I got so many. I think, especially early on, Phil was such a seeker and like a hippie surfer, weed smoking, you know, free loving. Dude, And that doesn't really come across in his later life where he yeah. plays a lot of authority figures and conservative figures. And he's always got his shit together, you know. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Back, in, back in the day, though, man, he was, just, uh, he was just pretty freewheeling. He was living the artistic rock and roll lifestyle. So I, that was fun learning about that aspect of him that I really didn't know about at all before I yeah. went into the, the project.
1: How was the transition for him? I know, you know, we, we talked about it. how was the transition from being that freewheeling, dope smoking dude to like, man, I got to I got to have my shit together and I got to be a pro. Was it a, was it a, was it a, a smooth transition? Was it hard for him to transfer himself into that world as opposed to being the freewheeling hippie?
0: Well, I think it, it went little by little as he had more financial responsibilities. I mean, he was always a practical guy. So, you know, he that's why he got that job with his his brother doing the artwork. But then he, he felt so isolated there uh, and he had this acting bug. He, that's why he wanted to break out of just being this lone artist, and, and that started his march toward the stage and eventually ended up at the Groundlings. But, you know, he was always doing little bits, voiceover work. Uh, he was—as people remembered, he was never really the starving artist. Even yeah. at the Groundlings, he'd come in, you know, resplendent in new suits. He had new outfits all the time. He had nice cars. Um, so he, he, he was always, uh, you know, supporting himself
1: yeah well it, it's uh it, let 's get back to some of our some of your favorite uh things um let's let 's talk about the anal retentive chef um, <laughs> which is again one of my favorite uh characters that he did, and really really funny for people who might not know uh, explain uh, the anal retentive she- <laughs> the anal retentive chef
0: it 's basically Felix Unger as a chef i mean if they you know you recall the odd couple, the extremely neurotic Guy who has to have everything chopped uniformly and needs every bag sealed properly and loves symmetry and is very exacting in in everything. Um, And (laughs) so Phil played that to the hilt, you know, in a number of sketches. I think uh, there were one or two, maybe more where he was alone, but he also had guest stars come on. It's always fun to see him play off of others.
1: Well, let's do that. He, it, it, this is a PBS show, The Anal Retentive Chef. Um, and, uh, I mean, he spends more time, like, cleaning things up um, <laughs> and putting them in the oh, aluminum foil in the plastic bag with the tape and the scotch tape and the stuff than actually doing any cooking. Yes, um, yeah, there's barely
0: any cooking. <laughs>
1: it's, and it's brilliant. But in, a, in an unbelievable, brilliant idea, uh, John Goodman, who has been the host many, many, many times, um, one of the most reliable and consistently great hosts in the history of SNL, uh, always game for anything, you know. Yeah. Um, but he came on basically doing, you know, the, the famous Cajun chef, but not that Cajun chef, but he's doing a virgin, version of the Cajun chef. Yeah. And as we all know, a lot of chefs are very sloppy and they throw stuff around. And <laughs> So here's a clip of John Goodman as a Cajun chef being a guest on the anal retentive chef Phil Hartman
2: plays that. Now, what sort of Cajun delight are you going to prepare for us today? Odo? I'm going to be making a cray-
3: crayfish f2-3. Well, oh, you're going to love it. I'm told it's very good. Oh, I'll tell you, if I was to take a spoonful and put it on the top of your head, your tongue would be the hole in the roof of your mouth trying to get to it. I'll get on tea. Well,
2: now, where did you learn to talk and cook like that? Uh, Did you go to a school? No,
3: I grow up on a bayou with my Tante Marie. Uh, Tante is French for aunt. And she cooked for the whole entire family. Well, she must have been a beautiful person. Lord Marie, no, she was ugly. <laughs> she had a face that would make a train take a dirt road. But whoo, because she turned out the food, and she always told me, she said, T. Odell, I always spit twice in every dish. Once when you cook it, and once when you serve it. Because there should always be a little bit of you in everything you make. <laughs> I'll
2: well, let's get started, shall we, Odell? I'm going to stand back and let you take over the show. Me, kitcheness, Sue, kitchen. So.
3: Oh, get in. Uh, let's make some cooking room. <laughs> uh, uh, uh,
2: uh, let, let me be your
3: hands, because I know where everything goes. Oh, looky here. We got our uh, onion,
2: our tomato. And onions and tomatoes exactly the same size, but of course we know that, don't we? Oh, let's get rid of this little fellow.
3: <laughs> you done?
2: Yes, go
3: on, please. Okay. First, we make our fish stock. Now I got a plate full of bone, tail, fish heads. What's this? Well it's don't her- put a hat on my fish. It's an herbal bouquet. I don't want no hat on my fish. Get him off right, there. Very
2: well, you're in the driver's seat, fine. Go ahead.
3: Good now. First we cut up some ooh, <laughs> uh, uh uh,
2: Odell. I've already cut up an onion. Now, let's compare, shall we? Look at my onion. Doesn't it look nice? It just, it just looks better than your onion, and, well, let's use my onion. It don't matter what he looks like. You won't see it in the stock pot. Yes, but we'll know it's in there, won't we? So let's just throw your onion out, and, and, and we we'll, we'll, you, know, you know how we dispose of odif- odiferous waste now, don't you? We've been through this before, so...
1: There you go, and then he proceeds to get the tinfoil out and the... <laughs> Uh, and the teaming of him and uh, and John Goodman in that uh is just so great.
0: That was brilliant. I mean that was Felix and Oscar right there. Yeah. Odd yeah.
1: couple. Great stuff. Uh and you know uh he and and then of course you mentioned before uh, another uh, clip uh, that uh, you wanted me to play which I love so much. is obviously the Clinton uh he's out for a jog and he stops at McDonald's. Um this tell, tell everybody about this one. Tom Arnold was the host that night. Um, so tell everybody a little bit about this one before I play Click. And this, is a, this has gone on to be one of the classic uh, sketches ever. Honestly. It has.
0: Yeah. Phil began getting notice for his impression of Clinton, and Clinton was known to love fast food. And so they decided to do a sketch where Tom Arnold is the McDonald's manager, and uh, Bill Clinton stops in on a jog with uh, a couple of his Secret Service agents. I think it was Tim Meadows and, and Kevin Nealon and uh he turns the whole event into sort of a glad handing uh taste testing <laughs> session with various people who are uh, dining at McDonald's.
1: Yeah. And it, and, and it's, it's a great, it's, it, it works on so many levels. It, it, you know, it talks about like how Clinton was being made fun of for, you know, eating a bunch of fast food and being a slob, but also having good ideas. And it kind of combined both of those things.
0: It does. Yeah. <laughs> right. Intercepted by a warlord. I think is one of those. Fantastic. Fast. So yeah. this is, this
1: is, uh, this is the great Phil Hartman as Bill Clinton, just, you know, talking to the people at a McDonald's. I- Mr. President, I'm Kevin O'Brien, manager of the store, and I I just want to thank you for stopping by again.
2: Well, thank you, Kevin. you got a real American family place here. Is it too late for an Egg McMuffin?
1: Well, normally we stop serving breakfast at 11, but for you... Thanks so much. Hey, should I scare up some of them big, greasy sausage patties you like? (laughs) You read my mind? Okay. (laughs) Maybe you prefer a McLean
2: burger. Or a garden salad would be nice.
3: Uh, Governor Clinton, um, I'm a sophomore in college, and I I may have to drop out because my parents can't afford the tuition.
2: Speaking of the devil, that's one of those McLean sandwiches, isn't it?
1: Yeah, would you like to try it?
2: (laughs) Well, maybe just a bite.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Mm. That's not bad. Well, you know, my National Service Trust Fund would allow every student, like yourself, you mind if I wash it down? (laughs) <laughs> mm. that really hits the spot here Mr. Clinton, it's your Egg McMuffin oh thank you Kevin hey, have you got any of that sweet and sour sauce you know the ones you dip the McNuggets into for your Egg McMuffin or a barbecue sauce whichever you, you can use mine
2: oh great thank you here just just pour it right on there I, I have a question that's it pour, pour it all on um Do you
1: favor the uh, decision to send military forces to Somalia?
4: Hmm. That's a good question. Yes, I do. And let me tell you why. See, right now, we're sending food to Somalia. But it's not getting to the people who need it because it's being intercepted by warlords. (laughs) And it's not as us. It's other countries, too. Like your McNuggets is released from Great Britain to Somalia, intercepted by warlords. Just <laughs> guy's Malaya fish sandwich, aid from Italy, warlord. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how much, doesn't matter how much food you send, a, a McDLT, a hot apple pie, it's just gonna end up in the hands of Warlord. <laughs> now, with <the laughs> now with the broad-based international military force, we can make sure that. This McRib sandwich gets to the people who need it. See? Where right are folks?
5: Sure. Uh, sir, I think we should probably continue your jog. We've only gone about an eighth of a
1: mile.
4: All right, all right. You guys up for a real run? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Racing to the pizza hut! Yeah.
1: So there you go. Um, Just classic. And that that long pause there is because Phil actually couldn't speak because he had so much food in his mouth. And in a great piece of uh, improv, uh, Rob Schneider grabbed a drink off of a table and gave it to him.
0: (laughs) He did, yeah. Phil almost (laughs) choked. Yeah. It was
1: was fantastic. And then then Schneider gave him a napkin too. Yeah. Uh, It's just great to watch that. Um, but that, 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 you know, like, you know, that was kind of a breakout for him. The, the Clinton thing was kind of a, finally like this breakout as you were talking about before.
0: It was, yeah. And I, you know, it allowed him to get more work, uh, outside of SNL as well. It still wasn't the character he wanted with the catchphrase, you know, yeah. the, you know, by that time, Mike Myers had, you know, Wayne's world. And of course, Dana was always coming up with, uh, with, with something. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think Phil felt better about his place at SNL having had, that breakout character, although he was always sort of dogged by the younger guys coming up and how the show was changing.
1: Yeah. That, in that in the later part of his, of his tenure uh, at SNL, um, you know, that became sort of apparent and it was, and this is stuff that I've talked about before and it's in all the books that we've, you know, that you and I have both read. Um, And and when you have written (laughs) um, um, about how during that time period, like a lot of the a lot of the female cast members, you know, particularly people like, you know, Sarah Silverman and other people like Jeannie Garofalo, who had a very brief period of time where she was on the show. We're talking about how it was a boys club and that and you could tell that by the by by some of the stuff that was really taking off on the show. And that's not Phil's type of humor.
0: No, it, it wasn't. I think sort of the you mean, you mean sort of the frat boy ish, yeah, type exactly. Stuff, the antics, yeah. the more physical yeah. comedy yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, Farley had been doing that, but you're right. It started ramping up, and I think he just felt after you know seven eight years his his time was sort of coming mm-hmm. to an end, and he needed a new challenge. But man, what an eight years it was! An
1: incredible eight years. And then uh, 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 news radio. Talk talk a little bit about that um, before we play the Sinatra clip. Talk a little bit about uh, about news radio. And he he was so great on that show. And what did that do for him career-wise?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think news, news radio never took off the way they thought it would because it kept moving around. But it was just, you know, artistically um, well-received from almost everybody. Um, I, I think, you know, Phil plays Bill McNeil, this, you know, basically an arrogant idiot uh, broadcaster. Phil played arrogant idiots really well. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it occurs to me, Stephen Colbert went on to play that same character on the yeah. Colbert Report. Without question. Uh, I love the combination of, of arrogance and idiocy. So I think, you know, that that's what the the character had. But, you know, it was just beautifully written. Um, uh, never got the audience share it, it should have had. And I think it ended up in 55th place at at some point. Yeah. Uh, but it still lives on as this, you know, cult cult classic.
1: Yeah. And those of us who watched it regularly, which I, I was a faithful viewer uh, to that show, I thought that show in general was great. I thought the cast was great. I thought it was really well written. And I loved phil hartman it was just a showcase you know he, he wasn't the lead or anything he would come in and no. kill he would come in and kill and leave
0: <laughs> he would and it was so different from snl like snl was kill or be killed and yeah. this was much more of an ensemble show and it took him some time to uh trust himself and trust others in that atmosphere but you know eventually they really gelled
1: yeah and it was great and you know i mean he appeared in movies here and there i particularly i particularly remember him. Uh, I mean, well, he was in the that uh, Sinbad movie. Uh, kind of, kind of Guest. Yes, he was in Houseguest. But yeah. I particularly remember him being hilarious in Blind Date. The, the like, He Admiral was.
0: Stone. And that was early on. I think, what yeah. was that, 85, 86, something yeah. like that with Bruce yeah, yeah. Willis? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I want to say he did that before he shot a bunch of the early Pee Wee episodes for CBS and before SNL started.
1: Yeah. I, rem- I think that I just, was in the can. I just remember him going, she loses control, (laughs) which is one of my... My favorite lines in that whole movie. Um, Movie-wise, what did Phil Hartman do, you know, uh, in, in that regard? What were some of the other things that he did film-wise?
0: I mean, you know, his film career c- could have been better. I don't think he was given that much time to take off. It was only four years between ending SNL and when he died that yeah. he was really acting more as a leading man or as a sort of co-leading man in movies. I mean, there was house guests, There was Greedy. There was Small Soldiers. There was, I mean, some of them were good. None of them yeah. were ever great, um, yeah. but there were it was more than one person who who really thought he could have become a good, serious leading man, like a dramatic leading man. And I've heard yeah. multiple times people say, "Oh, he could have played uh, Brian Cranston's role on Breaking no, Bad." Yep. That comes up all the time. But yep. you know, who knows? We'll never know.
1: Wow. It's too bad. Um, and again, that brings us to the you know to the end of his life, which is unbelievably tragic and sad. And what do you think? You know his you know, his legacy is, uh, uh in, in, you know, you, you know, in interviewing all, and, and how many people did you interview for the book and how long did it take you to write really quickly?
0: Uh, I think in total, the book was a couple of years. Um, I don't know, 150, maybe yeah. something yeah. like that, you yeah. know, uh, and, and, and many of them more than, than once, plus all kinds of archival material and, uh, you know, and toward the end for the end of his life, of course, the, all the police records and sure. I happened to get in contact with the detective who had overseen the case and he was just about to retire. And I, I lucky timing, I went out to Topanga Canyon and just sat for hours yeah. and, and poured over the record. So that's how I was able to describe that, those harrowing final yeah. hours in Phil's life. Yeah.
1: And and so what do you think his legacy is? Um, You know, uh, you, you, you look back at this incredible run that he had on SNL and, you know, like even the artistic stuff that he did, the art stuff that he did. What do you think is Phil Hartman's, what does he leave behind as his legacy?
0: I mean, what a Renaissance man. He was talented on so many fronts. I mean, both visually and, and on the stage, I just think he was whatever he did, he gave it a hundred percent or a thousand percent. If you want to be cliched, you know, yeah. he, or as Jan Hook said, he played it for blood. Right. He was just very devoted to what, you know, even whether, whether it was surfing, whether it was skiing, whether it was drawing, whether it was acting on the stage or on cam, he was never half asked about it. Yeah. He always gave it his all. And he was very generous too as a performer. I mean, that's why they called him the glue. Even crappy sketches were held together by, by his very presence.
1: Yeah. Um, I just did an entire episode about the Steven Seagal. Posted, oh God! Um,
0: who many consider the worst episode yeah. of all uh, time in SNL. And,
1: <laughs> you know he's in he's in three scenes with him, uh, and yeah. Phil Hartman is like doing his best. Never, you know, there's never a, you, there's never you can't tell that he's on stage with a guy who doesn't know what the hell he's doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. Uh, he's still committed, one hundred percent. Um, do you see anybody, you know, I mean, obviously I think he's, he's influenced a lot of the cast members that have, that have come past him, but are there anybody's who are kind of heir to the throne? Is there any other people that you've seen on SNL after that Phil left that could be described as glue that could be described as, you know, this guy's got a little, or this woman, this woman, or this man has a little Phil Hartman in them?
0: Uh, Jeez, there were so many. Uh, I, I've never thought about that. Who's the Who's the new glue? Huh? It's
1: the. It's for me. For me, and I can. I, I, I just tell you this, and you, it, you can think about it. But for yeah. me, right now, it's it's for me. It's Keenan. Uh, it's Keenan. Keenan
0: is a great choice. You're right. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't go right to Keenan. He's been there what sixteen 20, years now. Twenty years. Oh, twenty He's years.
1: This, yeah, it's his twentieth season, and you can always rely on it. Like this past episode. uh this past uh, episode with Ana Diarmas was a was a pretty poor, horrible episode. I mean I it, didn't
0: see that episode. It but was I'll it was very weird.
1: But who's funny in every sketch is Keenan. He's crazy. He's great always in every there. Sketch.
0: Just looking at him makes yeah. me laugh, honestly.
1: And, and and as far as like on the female side right now, just in terms of right now, for me the glue in the female cast d- uh, department is, is Heidi Gardner. Um, Heidi
0: Gardner's fantastic I think Sarah Sherman is great. Is uh, it Sarah Sherman? Yeah, Sarah yeah. Sherman, uh, yeah.
1: and she spent a significant amount of time here being crazy. As
0: yeah, she did, Sarah Squirm.
1: Um, but <laughs> but like his influence is there; you can feel it, you know, throughout the years. Um, and uh, you know, and when people look back on it, I mean, I'm of the opinion that he's the best cast member ever. And I'm sure that in your research and interviews and stuff like that, he's highly regarded. Correct
0: overall, he's always highly regarded. He's usually at least in the top five. Yeah. Question. You know, which is well, and how many cast members have, have gone through there. I, I, I can't even I, count.
1: I don't even know at this point. I really don't. Well, yeah. I wanted to to the final clip to be the Sinatra group. Um, uh, and this is, he's, he did it several times, but this is the best one. And this was the weekend, by the way, a lot of people forget this. This is the weekend the, the original Gulf War broke out. Um, oh. it, was, it was the night the Gulf War broke out. And so the viewership was a little bit low because everybody was watching CNN. It was our first time you know, watching 24-hour news, you know, when that first Gulf War started in in February of 1991. Um, And uh, it was terrific because Sting was the host and the musical guest. Right. And he appeared as Billy Idol on the Sinatra group. And (laughs) explain... What the Sinatra group is and what it's a takeoff uh, of.
0: Yeah, the Sinatra group is a takeoff on the McLaughlin group, where John okay. McLaughlin would have this sort of round table. They weren't at a table, but of, you know, august experts. And Frank <laughs> Frank had uh, uh, sort of music folks, um, all of whom he had no respect for. Right. <laughs> so he would always bigfoot them and talk over them and, and berate them. Uh, but John McLaughlin would, would kind of do the same thing sometimes he would he would blurt stuff out he would talk over people so it was kind of that larger than life guy bullying his way through the show
1: yeah so Sinatra would host this and and it is uh I mean Phil Hartman doing Sinatra to me is just it's beyond amazing
0: it was I mean Joe Piscopo did it before him but it was much more respectful Sinatra right um I I think I think Nancy or Tina uh, had to convince her dad that it was actually a compliment that Phil right. was doing him on I, the show.
1: I interviewed I interviewed uh, Joe Piscopo many years ago, and uh, Joe was like, "And eh, I want to talk about the Phil Hartman uh, impression uh, because it was too mean." And what uh, and his was? Y- uh, I, no, yeah, he said the Phil Hartman impression was too mean.
0: Oh, you mean uh, Phils was? or her, Yes. Or, yeah. Okay. No. Joe. I Joe Pisc. I was interviewing Joe Piscopo, and Piscopo <laughs> said, "I don't want to talk about
1: it because it was too mean, and the family doesn't like it, and they prefer my impression." And, and I was like, "I'm thinking to myself, no, well, you, yeah, actually, Phils was much funnier than yours, but I'm not going to go into that right now, buddy." Well, that was
0: Smigel too. The the meanness, the <laughs> yeah. edge. To right. It. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why right.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. Smigel is the <laughs> It's the guy who wrote that. So let's get to this. This is what Sting is. Billy Idol. Um, uh, Chris Rock is Luther Campbell. Um, <laughs> From two live crew. Um, and uh, Steve and Edie are um, uh, Victoria Jackson uh, and um, uh, Mike Myers. Yep. Uh, and Sinead O'Connor is the great uh, Jan Hooks. So yes. this is the Sinatra group.
5: Uncle Festa.
3: I don't understand the question.
5: I'll tell you what you better understand. Next time you see Old Glory riding up that pole, you better sing that anthem, darling. You're lucky you're a chick, or you'd be nothing but a stain on the road and a crew cut. Our founding fathers went to the mat for you, baby. Ah,
3: It's not my flag, I'm Irish.
5: Oh, yeah? Well, then stay off of this stuff. That's the curse of you people, Billy Idol. Yeah, uh, I forgot the question. I'll give you the question. What's with this devil stuff? The black mass and the whole 666 coffins thing. Hey, don't think the big man upstairs ain't keeping score, baby. He put you in the penthouse. He can kick you down to the gutter with these two. Hey!
0: Hey, hey, come on.
5: Shut up, you waste of space. Just be glad you get to hang with me. You're right, Frank. Sorry, Frank. Well, it's your choice. You can open for me at the Meadowlands or headline at the TikTok Inn. Okay, Luther. First, I think Millie Vanilla got what they deserve. Can't understand a word. Okay, next issue. Rita Hayworth or Ava Gardner? Who would you rather nail? I disqualify myself because I done them both. I think you're a bloody, stupid old fart. You're all talk, Blondie. You want a piece of me, I'm right here. Don't provoke me, old man. You don't scare me. I got chunks of guys like you in my stool. All right. I'll rip your bloody head off. Steve, go kick his ass. What? You heard me?
0: Do it, Steve.
5: Well, okay.
1: All right. So that, and by the way, that's sort of the tail end of the sketch, and that—that's like there's before that there's about six minutes of genius of the the, Smigel, the great writing, and 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 Hartman just delivering these brutal brutal attacks yeah it's, he it's you great. can tell he's
0: in it he's in the moment 100 yeah. percent. he is frank
1: <laughs> no question about it and uh and yeah i mean and so we wanted to close with that because that is one of the funniest and most memorable uh sketches that that phil hartman ever. that did. might
0: be my favorite of all time especially yeah. having worked on a on a sinatra book with my pal uh bill zami <laughs> yeah. yeah i was yeah. in that world for a long time
1: um, and, and, and so, uh, again, you know, uh, we, it's the tragedy of Phil Hartman and you, t- you talk about it in the book, it's, it's, it's mentioned in, you know, talked about, you know, very, very, uh, thoroughly in the book as well. Um, and, uh, when you, when you, when you wrote the book, what was the feedback that you got? Did you get feedback from his family? Did you get feedback from friends and things like that after, uh, after I, the book came out?
0: Yeah, I did. You know, uh, uh, of course this was kind of an emotionally fraught. Project because sure. you know his family hadn't spoken before, um, you know his brothers were especially supportive, but you know also his sisters. In the end, uh, it was kind of a split reaction. I don't think they thought that so much would be revealed because I, d- I dug deep into his past and in his in his life, um, and so I think the reaction was split from the family. I've got gotten, mm-hmm. gotten a lot of great reactions from readers and from uh, some of his friends. And, you know, it was not an easy read, especially, you know, the, the final days. Yeah. Um, uh, because there's stuff out there that people haven't seen before. And also it brought back a lot of hard memories. I always try to keep in mind that, yes, this is a celebrity and millions of people know him, but he was a friend and a brother right. and a son and a husband. And so you really have to keep sort of that empathetic thing intact.
1: Well, I read the book. Uh, I mean, I read it Eight, eight years ago, but I read it and I liked it very, very much. And as a, huge, as a, as a huge fan of Phil Hartman, I think you did a great job. Um, I really appreciate it. it. it is a, it's a really terrific book. It's on my bookshelf uh, and, and I love it. It's called You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman, Mike Thomas, uh, is the author and it's available everywhere. Where can we read you now? You write for the you you, you do the back page of the Chicago Magazine on radio. I do, basis. Yeah, yeah. For I
0: think this is year seven. We've been doing this feature on the back page called Back Room, um, and it's interviews with prominent Chicagoans from all walks of life. You know, actors, writers, politicians, all kinds of folks. And it's in the vein of Esquire used to do a, a thing called What I've Learned. It's basically life wisdom, little bits of biography. Mm-hmm um and you know it's i think it's a nice out for the magazine i have occasional long form features too i've got got one coming up fairly so check, soon so. look
1: for the byline of mike thomas in chicago magazine you write some business stuff too as, as well people can uh can i check do that yeah out.
0: writers got to get paid so you know <laughs> m- marketing corporate stuff like right. that i like the balance between yeah. you know the the chicago mag i also do writing for you know chicago symphony website so that's a nice balance to the to nice. the business stuff. Very yeah. cool.
1: Well, you've written a couple of great books about uh, about the comedy world, man. Uh, the Second City, book, Second City book is great. The Phil Hartman book is great. And I look forward to, if you dive into the world of comedy again, uh, I look forward to it because you do a great job with
0: it, man. I would love to. Like I said, my best ideas come from somebody else, so I'm all ears if you have one. <laughs>
1: all right, I'll call you in a couple of minutes. All
0: right. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. It was great being <laughs> on with you. All
1: right, Mike. Take care, buddy. All right, take care. There you go. That's uh, Mike Thomas, everybody, uh, who is the author of a terrific uh, Phil Hartman book. Um, And that book is called uh, You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman. Again, my thanks to Mike Thomas uh, for such a great uh, interview. And my thanks to you for checking us out here uh, at uh, that show. And, uh, And I hope you subscribe. Please do. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Uh, rate and review us on every platform. Check out all the great uh, other podcasts here at Radio Misfits.com uh, at Radio Misfits Podcast Network, including my other podcast, the Nick D Podcast. Please check that out. And uh, leave us voicemails with suggestions about what you'd like to hear on this Saturday Night Live podcast at 773 4176948 for suggestions. Or email us anytime you want for both podcasts. Nick D Podcast at gmail.com will get me there and here at that show. My thanks to Radio Misfits again and to the great Jason Skaggs. Uh, who uh, wrote and composed and performed the opening and this closing theme to this podcast as well. And again, my thanks to you. Watch Saturday Night Live, obviously, every Saturday night on NBC. And uh, check me out again on this podcast next week. Thanks again. Have a good one.
5: night and have a pleasant tomorrow.